Hi, welcome to One Tough Podcast. You know, we've been doing these podcasts and I've been getting a lot of communications back and forth. And some people don't like what I say. Some people don't like facts. Some people don't want to know a black on black crime. They call me a racist because I tell the numbers. I would love not to be able to give the numbers that I give out, including last week, with the fact that 12,000 African Americans or black Americans were killed last year. 90% of them were killed by other blacks. And when I say 30 a day, 30 a day, blacks will be killed 90% by other blacks. And people say, when you say that, Bo, that's racist. Well, I have something to tell you. You give me some other different numbers. 700 blacks killed in Chicago last year. I'd like to have other numbers, and I'd like to not say it. But if you want to listen to the facts and the truth, the FBI statistics do not lie. And what I talk about when I talk on my podcast, I think, is the word experience. So what I did was I looked up the definition of experience because I really believe in my 71 years of being on this earth, I have experience in every aspect of life. And uh, here's some of the meanings of experience, the process of doing and seeing things and have things happen to you. So in other words, when you have real experience, it's happened to you. Also, the skill or knowledge that you get by actually doing something and the length of time that you've spent doing something such as a particular job. So I think in my 71 years, I can really say that I have experience in all levels of life whether it be in growing up, family life, tragedies, positive things, politics, security, policing, homicide detective, movies. I've done it a lot. How much have I done? It actually came to be that I've been approached by two very, very popular and famous authors, and they want to do a documentary on my life. I says, well, you know what? What's so interesting about my life? Then I was at a funeral about a week and a half ago in a church, and someone was trying to do a eulogy about someone I really knew pretty well. And it wasn't done that well because they didn't hit on the life points of the person that I was at their funeral. The person that I, who I was at their funeral had done a lot of very positive things, and it just got to me saying, you know what? When I die, if I die tomorrow, no one would really know what was in my mind during these 71 years. So today, and maybe we're going to continue next week, but I'd like to talk about my life and let people understand. When I say things, I don't just say it from a cuff. I've walked the walk, I've done it, I've faced it, and we're going to talk a little bit about a life. It wasn't always a luxury life, it wasn't a glorious life. We'll start from the beginning. First of all, I grew up with a mom who was from Catania, Sicily. First generation I am. And a father who was born in Germany and came to the United States. A father that I could count on two hands the times I saw him smile. Very strict, very stringent. And back then, when I grew up, I had my brother Alan, who I lost with diabetes. We slept in the same room together. And my father was very, very strict. We didn't have much of anything. All I knew was that in order for me to do things and have things, I had to work. So the work ethics began. 
around seven and a half, almost eight years old, because you had to be nine to get a Long Island press route. So my brother Alan was two years older than me. He gave me his press route, the Long Island Press. So I used to deliver 71 newspapers. I used to get up, it was always dark, it was never light. And I used to deliver with this big bag. I didn't even have a bicycle. I used to deliver the newspapers. Then I got ready for school, and a lot of times my mom, she was working at Ideal Toy Corporation. My father was working, so they'd all be gone. So I learned how to iron shirts from the back to the front to make sure there was no wrinkles. I learned how to wash clothes with the washing machine. I learned how to cook. I learned everything, cleaning. I made sure I, had, I knew how to clean vacuum, and I thought I had a seat on my vacuum because I used to vacuum the house over and over and over and over again. So the problem that I had was if I didn't work, I wouldn't have any money. So then I got a job, I'll never forget, first job that it was actually a paying job. I used to sweep a factory out. I'd get home from school around three o'clock and then around four, I would sweep a factory out for about two and a half, three hours. And I think they were giving me a dollar and a half or $2 an hour, but it was a lot of money in the 1950s. Then I started to work on weekends. I started as a busboy in a restaurant that my dad was at. And then I became a short order cook. I became a griddleman. So I learned how to cook. And I learned how to cook also from two different variables. I used to watch my mother cook. But then my father was a really great cook. And we used to get him on Sundays because that was the only day that he was off work. He worked six days a week. And I used to watch him cook. I used to peel the potatoes. I thought I was a potato peeler. So all we ate was potato, a lot of potatoes. German father, a lot of potatoes. Then my mother used to do the Italian side with the macaronis and the meatballs and the, uh, and we used to call it sauce. I'm sorry, a lot of people call it gravy. Mom used to make that. So I used to watch. I always say to people, watch and learn. Before you open your mouth, you think you know everything about it, let's go back to that word of experience. So now you're learning, so I'm working. Now I would have money. Now, all of a sudden, let's fast forward. I'm 12 years old. I'm hanging around on 101st Avenue in Ozone Park. And guess who I was hanging around with? I was hanging around with a guy named Ralph Scopo, who had a brother, Joey Scopo, and the father was Ralph Scopo. I didn't know gangsters. I didn't know anybody who was who and what was what. All I knew is these guys dressed really, really well. And the younger Ralph Scopo was about two years older than me. And we used to go, and I used to hang around with him. And I began doing push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, squat runs, running. Now I'm going into high school. All I did was become physically strong because when I was younger, I was only 5'8". I never got no more than 5'8". You had to be 5'8 to go in the police department. Now I'm probably about 5' tall because I've shrunk a lot. And one thing I knew about life is if you made yourself physically strong, you never had to fear anybody. I don't care how big they were. And one thing I hated when I was in school, I hated bullies. I hated these big guys that would push little guys around. So I started to become strong. Push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, squat thrusts, running. Now I go into high school and they had this John F. Kennedy physical fitness team. And I was 12, gonna be 13 years old, a freshman. And I saw these guys, and I said, that's what I want to do. So I joined the team. Within two years, 
I became captain of the team. And we'd compete against other high schools across the country, and we would become the physical fitness team of five guys. We'd work out four hours a day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, every day of the week, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, squat thrusts. I was at a point where I was doing uh, 40 pull-ups, 180 push-ups, but this is what I did every day. Then I became a gymnast high bar, parallel bars, through the shop, put, ran, ran cross country, ran a mile, everything that you could think about physically. One little problem, I wasn't so focused on scholastics. I wasn't, I hated homework, I hated studying, but this is where I was at. So now you gotta remember, now I'm building up a body of strength. Strength that I could take on anyone. I can fight anybody, any two people. Anybody bothered my brother who was two years older than me, I'd kick their ass. I would, I love to fight. For some reason, my life was fight because I didn't lose too many fights. I really can't remember losing any unless the one time guy sucker punched me with brass knuckles, but I got him back anyway after that. But so let's go back to the beginning again. So I had a father when I was 12, 13 years old, he used to tell me, you're in this house by 8.30. So when I was on the corner in Ozone Park, Ralph Scopo and the guys, they used to go to Idlewell Airport. And I didn't know what the hell they were doing over there. They were shopping over there and you would, it would be funny. All of a sudden they would go, they would go after these freight shipments. And next thing is, the next day you would see in the storefront Italian leather shoes, the old Italian knits. So whatever, whatever they would rob in the airport would be out on 101st Avenue the next day and everybody would be buying it. And you see all the guys walking around with Italian knits on, Italian soft leather shoes. This was kind of cool. My father used to say, where'd you get that from? I said, no, 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 the guy owns the store and I do some work. I lied to him because my father would have broke my hands if he knew these were stolen goods. So I'd have to be home. So when the guy used to say, come on, Bo, we're going over to Idlewild Airport, we got to do some things, I'd say, I'd like to come with you guys, but if I don't get home by 8.30, my father, that belt came off, he had an imprint. FD had his initials on a belt buckle, and he used to take it off, and now they would call it child abuse, but my day it was dad keeping me in tow. He used to whip me with that belt. I used to try to sneak under the old bathtub with the four legs, and it was only about eight inches. I couldn't fit on there, and he'd beat the living crap. You know why he'd beat me up? If I talked back to my mother, or if I try to explain myself to my father, he used to call me a little effing guinea. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking. Remember, he was from Germany. My mother was Italian. So I thought a little guinea was something that I was. And to this day, I laugh about it. Because I used to call, tell people, my dad called me a little effing guinea. And he looked upon me. I don't know why he didn't like me the way my brother Alan looked with the blue eyes and the blonde hair. But I suffered at the hands of my father. I'll never forget his hands, massive fingers. He had hands like shovels when he used to smack me around. But you know what? I was a tough kid. I needed to be kept in tow. When I wrote my book, One Tough Cop, I wrote in the beginning to my dad, thank you. I only got to know you after I became a man. Because the reality was, if I didn't have my father stepping on top of me and keeping me in line, I would have turned out to go the other way and I didn't go the other way. Now let's fast forward. Ralph Scopo Jr., and again, it's the early 60s in Ozone Park. 
We had a problem. We had a heroin problem. More so than black neighbors, Hispanic neighbors. This is the dirty little secret. A lot of the mob guy's sons were shooting heroin. I'll never forget on the trailer, railroad tracks, Ralph used to say, hey, Bob, get your strap, put it on my arm. And then he used to pump up his arm with a little bottle cap with a piece of cotton. And he used to take the eyedropper in the syringe and he, I would hold his arm and he would shoot up heroin. And then all the kids in the neighborhood had tracks. There was one kid in the neighborhood with no tracks on his arm, and that was me. I would never mess with that garbage. And all I knew is one thing, is that it was wrong. Now, Ralph Scopo's father was the head, one of the heads of organized crime. I didn't know at that time what, where, or how, but he was the construction head. He headed up all the unions. Anything that was built in New York City, carpenters, lathers, iron workers, Ralph Scopo, concrete, Ralph Scopo, the money went through Ralph Scopo to all five crime families. You had the uh, Genovese, the Gambinos, the Lucchese's, the Bananos, and the Columbos, and all the money filtered through Ralph Scopo, the father. I only learned this years later. So he was a very important guy, and he used to want me to hang around with his son, because again, I was in very, very good shape, like someone that cut me out with it. And I didn't take none of those steroids like my friend Sid takes and all that crap. This is raw strength, and that's what I had. So the father kept pushing me to hang with Ralphie Jr., thinking I could get him away from him being a junkie. Now, again, Ozone Park in the early 60s. I know off the top of my head, Puppet, a whole bunch of guys, 10 Italians, overdosed, dead from heroin. These were sons of organized crime and Italian, not just organized crime, some really good Italian families. This was our little secret. But there was one guy that was not going to get involved with, and that was me. And my father would kill me, kill me, even though I knew it was wrong to do any drugs like that. Did I ever try cocaine? I'm not going to lie to you. I don't like pot. I tried that once. I don't like that kind of stuff. But heroin was prevalent all over our neighborhood. So the father kept pushing me to hang around with Ralph Scopo Jr. Now, fast forward. I'm uh, hanging around with him, and the father says, well, you know, Thursday nights we have veal cutlets and broccoli rub. I want you to come over to my house and have dinner every Thursday with our family, because you're, you're like family, Bo. I said thank you to the father, and Joey Scope was there. And uh, fast forward, uh, I used to go there every Thursday night, and the father was very happy that the son was hanging around with me. I was the only kid with short sleeve shirts, because I had no tracks on my arm. So I, it, he became like a second father, Ralph Scopo. And again, who's Ralph Scopo? Probably the most important earner for organized crime, which I only found out in 1985 when the commission case hit who Ralph Scopo really was. So I met everybody. And there was a one other fellow that I met, and this was this fellow called, his name was John Gotti. He was very close to Ralph, uh, to Ralph, uh, Ralph Scopo, but more so to Joey Scopo, the son. So now I met them all, I used to hang around, and I was always bold a tough kid, bold and I wasn't a cop yet. So now I'm 16 years old, I'm hanging out on the corner. It's a Saturday. I didn't see any of the guys. I said, where is everybody? They go, oh, I did have an open test to become a cop. 
I said, I don't want to become no friggin' cop. The last time I talked to a cop, he took a nightstick, and I still have on my shins indentations. He whacked the shit out of me with a nightstick because I was in the park after dark. I limped home. I told my father, said, what happened to you? I said, nothing, nothing. What happened to you? And I said, well, there was this cop. You know what he did? He beat me for the next half hour with a strap. I tried to get back under that, uh, the old... Uh, bathtub with the four notes on it and he beat me he wouldn't even let me explain i said let me explain as i said let me explain he beat the crap out of me anybody that you had involved with law enforcement or a policeman a policeman was always right years ago boy times have changed and we know it so again so now i'm 16 i i, I go to this stupid high school they hand me a number two pencil and the first question was what time is it showed you a clock it was one o'clock duh I mean, I think I got a 99 on this stupid cop test. Now, I never want to be a cop. I just took the test as a goof. So now I'm in high school. I'm 17 years old. The physical fitness team, we became number one in the nation, and I became number one individual. And we used to work out with the Marine Corps uh, trainers and all that. And the next thing is our high school was number one in the nation, and I was number one. It was pretty cool. High bar, city, we went, I did the high bar, the parallel bars. I did everything. I was a real jockstrap, but not too good in the old scholastic stuff. So now I'm graduating high school at 17 years old. All I wanted to be was a gym teacher. I wanted to go to Springfield College and be a gym teacher. Only problem is my family had no money. And again, I would be working. I'd be working on weekends. I would work as much as I can to make money. So Ralph Scope, well now my, my prom comes up and I'll never forget, Ralph Scope, I'm on the corner. This is the father. He goes, uh, you're going to a prom? I say, yeah, Lenny Welch, we're at the uh, Hilton. And I, I says, yeah. He goes, well, where are you going after the prom? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, I go see Louis the Lip over at the Copacabana. I hooked it up. And, of course, I had to go with the, uh, Mary Ellen Driscoll. She was the prettiest girl in the school. And I was the jockstrap at the school. It was a perfect thing. The only problem is uh, I didn't get anything that night. She was very straight. But So we go. Ralph Scopo gives me a new car. He said, take the car. Take your, your, the, the girl that you're taking to the prom and go see Louis the Lip. We go see Bobby Darren was performing. It was the coolest thing in the world. I walk in there, I tell Louis, yeah, Ralph Scopo sent me. We had a table, it was beautiful. It reminded me a lot of when in Goodfellas, when we filmed Goodfellas there, of similar happened to Ray Liotta, but this happened in real life with me. And now Ralph said to me, well, what are you gonna do with your life? I said, well, I wanna go to college, but I, we can't afford it. So the point is, Dex is, he goes, well, you wanna be a laborer? I said, what's a laborer? Concrete laborer. And I says, yeah, it's paying $5.65 an hour, $5.65. I said, wow, that's a lot of money. So he goes, meet Sammy the Weasel on 33rd Street in Lexington Avenue. They got a job going over there. Dick Underhill's the concrete guys that are working it. So I go meet Sammy. I said, Ralph Scopel sent me. He said, oh, okay. He goes, all right, you're going to be a concrete. They gave me a book. It was a local 6A. I think a concrete laborer at that time was closest synonymy to a uh, slave that built the pyramids because all you did was work your ass off and work day and night passing uh, plywood three by fours. I used to run the concrete buggies. It was real hard work. Then we had the coke fires, not cocaine, 
coke as a derivative of coal. And we used to set the fires underneath the pour. What they call the pour is the concrete. And I used to breathe that crap. To this day, I got asthma, and I got like black lung from that. I didn't know I was killing myself. But I'd work overtime, stayed the whole night, stalking the fires, making good money. And I'll never forget, 17 years old, I go to my dad. Could you sign for me? I want to buy a new Corvette, British Green, Bay Chevrolet. He goes, you got the money? I said, yes, I got the money. He went with me, and he signed his name the first time he did something for me like that. But I wasn't going to let him down because I knew I was making money, and everything was good. So I started to work. Now I'm working construction, and I'm a young guy. 17, 18 years old in New York. I used to go to Jimmy Wesson's. I used to dress up with a suit on, with a, a ties and handkerchiefs. I used to try to emulate the gangsters. And I used to go in there. One time I uh, picked up this older lady. I think she was 28 and I was 17. She took me home. Yeah, I think it's statutory rape, but it wasn't at that time, put it that way. And I was living a life because I had money. And when you have money, you live a good life. And I couldn't spend the money fast enough. I never had it. And I'm, I would make double my overtime and, and work and work. Then all of a sudden, I actually saw four people die off the building, falling off the building, stuff being dropped on them. And I, and I started working. I'm saying, wow, these people look... Uh, look really weathered. They were 30 years old, they looked like they were 50 years old. So I says, okay, I don't really care. I like this, I'm making money. And I would go home, I'd make sure I'd give my mom and my dad money when I was living home. That was an automatic thing. I, I think I was giving them almost $100 a week because that's what I could do and I made the overtime, so it was good. Next thing is Ralph Scopo calls me and goes, hey, Bo, they're building this thing downtown. It's called the World Trade Center. You want to go down and you make more money. I could get you a, a permit to work as an iron worker. I said, well, what does an iron worker do? He goes, well, an iron worker puts iron together. It's a connector, a bolt-up gang, riveting and all. I says, sure. And he goes, you're going to maybe make double the money you're making now. I said, let's go. Go see Mikey Black, uh, Black Mike. Uh, I think it was Cot Steel. So I got out to the World Trade Center, and it was there. one tower was about 40 stories, the other one was about 50. They were built sporadically. And then I go see Black Mike in the shanty, and he goes, I says, Ralph Scopo sent me. He says, oh, great. You're, this is right. They called me Ralph Scopo's nephew. I was never his nephew, but I, I was very honored. So now I start working as an iron worker, making all this money. And what, what I was doing originally was doing connecting, where you'd put the steel together, you'd use a stud wrench, you put it in there, you put a bolt, then the other crew would come by and they would bolt up the, uh, the thing and then they would have another crew to come soldering it and all that. And then I'm making money. We would go down to a place called Papoose. A lot of American Indians from from uh, uh, Montreal was there. And I became friends with all the Indians there. And this was something I loved. So now I'm making all this money. And a couple of times, it was really cold. And I said, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Next thing is, I had taken the cop test. They called me twice. And they said, if you don't take it this time, you're going to lose it. Now I was almost 20 years old, and I says, I don't know if I want to do this. And that was the transition that I says, okay, I'm going to try it. And uh, Ralph Scopo says, you're going to become a cop? I says, yeah. I didn't know that I was going to be kind of banned from coming to the club anymore. We had a club on 101st Avenue. 
So I go into the academy, and we're going to stop with the beginning of the police, but not yet. I was on the roof of the academy, and, and let's face it, I was in physical shape. I was number one in the academy. I was doing 40 pull-ups, 180 push-ups. All the coaches, all the trainers in the academies would bet money on me. Next thing is, all of a sudden, I'm on the roof. I'm in a gray uniform. And I see a guy going up a fire escape a couple of blocks away, and I have no gun, no badge. I run off the roof. The sergeant yelled, Deedle, where you going? I said, I'll be back. I run down the street. I jump on the fire escape. I go to the top. I chase this guy five blocks. I grabbed him in a headlock, not a chokehold, a headlock. And all of a sudden, he had two rings in his pocket. I said, don't you move. I'll break your neck. The next thing is the other police officers come and they had the rings in his pocket. I vouched, the, well, they vouched the rings. It was like an epiphany. I don't know what the hell the word is. It was like a light that went off and says, hey, I like this cop stuff. I can help people. And we're gonna end it with Bo liking this cop stuff. And we'll go back to that in the next podcast. And I'm telling you something, I'll take you through a life of experience. So when I talk about experience, when I talk about my life experiences, you're going to share it with me. And next week's going to be about the cop stuff. I thank you very much. Tune in for next week where we'll continue. Bo Deedle, one tough cop. How about Bo Deedle, one tough life. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.